Will you take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. And this morning, I would like to look at the first 12 verses of this amazing section of Scripture. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. This is a fascinating historical account, one that's filled with mystery and intrigue and one that is also filled with divine truth concerning our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There are four principal characters in this story, Herod, chief priests and scribes, and of course, the Magi. And in order to understand this, we need to know who these people really were. First of all, Herod the Great was the Roman-appointed king of the Jews. He was actually an Edomite, not a Jew, and the Jews despised him, and he knew it very well. Herod was a gifted orator. He was politically ambitious. He would be what we would call a narcissist. He was totally in love with himself, like many politicians. But he was an evil genius, according to Josephus, who said, Herod was capable, crafty, and cruel. But Rome admired him, and he was the one that they liked because he kept the Jews from any kind of an uprising. He was also a brilliant architect and builder. His most famous project, of course, was the expansion of the Second Temple in Jerusalem. He was also, as you might imagine, a notorious womanizer. He was completely ruled by his lusts. He had ten wives, 
and his most famous wife was Mariamne I, who was a Jewess, and he needed, of course, a Jewish wife to legitimize his right to reign over the Jews. And like all tyrants, he was also insanely jealous and cruel, paranoid of any threats to his reign. And so he distrusted almost everyone, especially the Jews that he knew found him to be so despicable. History records numerous accounts of murders and assassinations at his hands. Ultimately, he killed his wife, Mariamne, and had her mother, Alexandra, and Mariamne's two sons put to death. He was so wicked that five days before his death, which was approximately 4 A.D., he had another son killed. In fact, Emperor Augustus said, quote, it's safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Because he knew no one would mourn his death, he commanded that all the noble families of Jerusalem be gathered up and killed as soon as he died. Although his wish was never, never carried out, it demonstrates just how diabolically wicked this fiendish megalomaniac really was. And it's fascinating, isn't it, that this is the ruler God allowed Satan to have in place to receive his son, an insanely jealous, demonically controlled butcher, a man that was willing to massacre all the little boys under two years of age to preserve his power. Now, like all wicked rulers, Herod used religious leaders as his allies to help him uh, basically control the masses, and these were the chief priests and the scribes. Let me tell you about the chief priests. The chief priests were from the priestly line of Aaron. Most of them were what were called Sadducees, and these were liberal Jews that grossly distorted the law and the scripture in order to support their agendas. But they had considerable political and religious power. And the high priest was typically given that office by the king as an act of political appointment, or sometimes they even purchased that office. And if a ruler did not like that particular high priest, they would be removed. And the high priest presided over what was called the Sanhedrin, which was 72 Jewish leaders. Then that would be tantamount to our Senate and Supreme Court combined. There were other categories of priests and they performed various functions, but most of them were Pharisees, and together they formed a priestly aristocracy loosely labeled the chief priests. Bottom line, these were corrupt politicians who disguised themselves as noble men of God, much like the Islamic mullahs that we see today. And then there were the scribes, which consisted both of, of Sadducees and Pharisees. These were the scholars and the lawyers. They were the ones that intimately knew the Old Testament law. And they were highly skilled at twisting that law to suit their own needs for political and personal advantage. So these were Herod's henchmen, if you will. And then finally, we have the Magi. Well, wonder who they were. Were they the Oriental kings, as the popular Christmas carol suggests? Hardly so. One 
Bible scholar named Vincent says this, quote, Many absurd traditions and guesses respecting these visitors to our Lord's cradle have found their way into popular beliefs and Christian art. They were said to be kings, and three in number. They were said to be representatives of the three families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He went on to say, and therefore one of them is pictured as an Ethiopian. Their names are given as Caspar, Balthashar, Balthashar, and Melchior. And their three skulls, amazingly enough, are said to have been found. They were found in the 12th century by Bishop Reinald of Cologne. And today they are on exhibit in a priceless casket in a great cathedral in Europe. End quote. Now, I'm not sure which is more astonishing, the fact that Bishop Reinald could recognize the identity of these three skulls after 1,200 years, or people believing him. And of course, this betrays the frightening gullibility that remains endemic in our world today. Well, frankly, we don't know a lot about these wise men mentioned in Matthew's account, but we can piece together Scripture and other pieces of history to give us um, a, a, a fairly clear picture of who they were. In fact, the book of Daniel sheds light on their identity, the identity of the Magi, as well as other historians like Herodotus, who was the 5th century B.C. Uh, Greek historian, a, a contemporary of uh, Socrates. If we, if we look in Daniel, we see that, that these wise men or magi were basically part of the Medes and the Persians. In fact, wise men here in verse 2 of this text is really an untranslatable word, and it, it, it really refers to a certain tribe of people and it's best translated magi, but they were the priestly line of people from among the ancient Medes. They were very skilled in astronomy, the science of astronomy, as well as astrology, which is the superstition that Satan uses to deceive. And when you put those together, you have the ancient religion of Zoroastrianism, uh, which is the ancient pre-Islamic religion of Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And we can see the satanic effect of this today, for example, in the 12 signs of the zodiac or the horoscope, a practice, by the way, that is condemned by God because it presumes to define one's personality uh, and, and their, their makeup and, and, and just really who they are and also offer uh, great insight into the future. By the way, this is the sin of divination that's talked about in the Old Testament. They were called diviners and soothsayers or fortune tellers. And if we look in Deuteronomy 18, we see that these people uh, are detestable in the eyes of God. Now, because the Magi were skilled in the practice of divination and sorcery, the word Magi was eventually corrupted down through history into the word magic. And that's where we get the term magician, which is a synonym for a sorcerer. So the Magi were a priestly line of descendants from a tribe of people associated with the ancient Medes, a very ancient uh, nomadic people whose origins can be traced back to Abraham, who was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, where, where they first lived. You read about that in Genesis 12. Now, according to Herodotus, that ancient 
historian, the Magi were a hereditary priestly priesthood tribe, I should say, like the Levites in Israel, which was one of the 12 tribes set apart for priestly duties in Israel. So the Medes set apart the Magi for their priests. Now, we also find that the Magi had great political influence in four major world empires. We see them in the Babylonian Empire, which is modern-day Iraq. We see them having power in the Medo-Persian Empire, which was a a conglomerate empire that overtook Babylon. That's modern-day Iran. And also influence in Greece. You remember Alexander the Great that conquered the Medes and the Persians. And then even in the Roman Empire, and what we see is that the Romans greatly feared these Magi. That's a very important point for you to remember. The Magi rose to power through their demonic, cultic, astrological abilities. They actually had power. It was Satan's power. They used sorcery, divination, astronomy. And they became the advisors of the royalty of the East, and that's why they were called the wise men. Now, it's fascinating. In the Old Testament, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 3, as well as verse 13, we read about Nergal Ser Ezer, the Rabmag, which means the chief magi, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. And so they were the official advisors to the kings of that day. You read about that, for example, in Esther, chapter 1, in verse 13. So we see how Satan empowered these men to advise Nebuchadnezzar, for example, in the violent conquest to overtake Judah. And you will recall that in the Old Testament, we have a young 15-year-old Jewish boy that had dealings with the Magi, and his name was Daniel. He was kidnapped from a royal family in Judah along with three friends. They were deported to Babylon to be brainwashed into Babylonian culture, and they were required to assist the other uh, Jewish people, the, the prisoners, in their exile. If we look in Daniel chapter 2, we see how Daniel rose to be a statesman in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And we see how these magi were called, in verse 10, the Chaldeans. That's probably another name for the magi. They were also, in verse 27, called magicians. You will recall that they were unable to interpret the king's dream, and therefore he was going to put them to death. But in Daniel 2.24, we read how Daniel pleaded with the king, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. I will declare the interpretation to the king. And so Daniel interpreted the dream, and Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel master over the Magi. It says in chapter 5 and verse 11, the king appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. So these guys owed Daniel their life. Being their new leader and lifesaver, Daniel undoubtedly had their undivided attention, and he would have taught them about Jehovah God. He would have taught them about the coming Messiah. He would have explained to them the great truths of Old Testament prophecy, along with teaching the other godly saints of the diaspora of that day. Now, something else very important, and believe me, we're going to get to the text, but you need this background, all right? 
What's fascinating is that the Magi were so powerful that no Persian was ever allowed to become king except for two conditions. Number one, they had to master the scientific and religious practice and disciplines of the Magi. All right? They had to understand astronomy, math, agriculture, architecture, natural history, and astrology. But the second thing, before they could ascend that throne, they had to be approved of and crowned by, you guessed it, the Magi. All the judicial and kingly offices were controlled by the Magi. In fact, the wisdom of the Magi was called in Esther 1.19 and Daniel 6.15, the law of the Medes and the Persians. And of course, they specialized in dream interpretation. So, think about this. 600 years before Jesus was born, our sovereign God, who has ordained the end from the beginning, used Daniel to prepare these ancient Gentile kingmakers for the arrival of the king of kings. Of course, they didn't know that. Here we have Zoroastrian wise men who possessed an intimate understanding of the Hebrew scriptures. And all of this is being passed down until Jesus comes. Now, the plot thickens. As we come to Matthew 2, we see something very fascinating in that time of history. Rome was terrified of the Eastern Empire. Across that vast Arabian desert loomed the great Parthian Empire, the land of the, of the Medes and Persians and Babylon, an equally evil empire as Rome. And what's interesting is, historically, there was one place that they fought all of their battles. In 63, 55, and 40 B.C., guess where they fought their battles? Right on the Mediterranean coast, right there in the land of Syrian, Jordan, Palestine, the land of Israel. So Israel was a no-man's land between two great powers. My, what a coincidence. The Romans especially despised and feared these sorcerers and astrologers. In, in fact, Philo of Rome, who was a, a Jewish f a philosopher from Alexandria, said of them, quote, they are vipers, they are scorpions, and they are venomous creatures. Now, at the time of Christ's birth, there was a ruling body in the eastern Parthian Persian Empire called the Magistani, and they were totally composed of magi, and their duty was simply to make kings. And what's interesting is in 2 BC, their king, Phraates IV, was poisoned by an Italian concubine who had borne him a son, and she wanted him to ascend the throne. So she had to get rid of the king. So they were looking for a new king for the Eastern Empire, one that would hopefully help them conquer Rome. Do you see where this is going? So let's put it all together in perspective as we marvel at how God providentially orchestrates all of the events in history to accomplish his purposes. Here we have an insanely jealous puppet king that the people despise, and then suddenly he discovers these Persian kingmakers that are entering into Jerusalem. Now, 
if I can put it to you rather simply, these weren't just three dudes riding camels, folks. That's not how they traveled. But their, their customary mounts of that day were white Persian steeds, and they would always travel with a large entourage of soldiers, usually about a thousand mounted cavalry. Did I say cavalry? Cavalry. <laughs> All right? This, this is not cavalry Bible church. This is cavalry Bible church. All right, so that's how they would travel. And these kingmakers are not going to go anywhere unescorted, especially into Roman territory. And so they would have been accompanied not only by soldiers, but also by multiple servants. They would have had a large caravan. They would have to pack their tents, all of their supplies, because this would be about a two-month journey one way. So imagine the scene. They have these pointed sorcery hats, all of these flowing robes, this large caravan protected by this mounted Persian cavalry, These kingmakers are coming into Jerusalem, and in verse 2, notice what they say. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, folks, if you understand what's going on here, this is actually rather humorous. Herod, of course, being superstitious, hears the word star in Greek, austere, which means a blazing forth of light. And he probably thinks that this is a, a falling star or, or, or a, perhaps a comet, which in those days was always an omen that predicts um, it, it's time to, dis, to depose a king. So he's thinking, my goodness, you know, this could be somebody coming to depose me. Plus, notice that they're asking, Who's, where's the king of the Jews? So this adds to the humor. Notice this great understatement in verse 3. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled. Folks, that word troubled means a whole lot more than what we think. It, it carries the idea of quaking to the point where you can't hardly speak. Of, of, as we would say, your knees knocking, you're shaking in your boots. You may be doing other things because you're so terrified. That's the idea. You're thrown into confusion. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And you know what makes it even more funny? We know that historically at this time, Herod's troops were out on a mission, and so they were quite vulnerable. So what do wicked men do when they are threatened? Well, they angrily scheme against God, and they consult with the emissaries of Satan, the chief priests and scribes, and that's what we see happening in verses 4 through 8. It says, and gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire. Grammatically, it means that he's constantly asking. He's worked up here. He began to inquire of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And so he's on a search and destroy mission. Find that child before this thing gets out of control. And so as we look at the text for a few minutes here this morning, I'm going to give you a very simple outline. We're going to look firstly, first at light for the kingmakers and secondly, darkness for the king haters. We're going to understand what this says about our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how this should impact us today. So with this context, 
Let's examine the historical narrative under the heading, Light for the King Makers. Again, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, which means, wow, look at this. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. They're asking, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. I find it amazing that that 600 years before Jesus was born, the sovereign grace of God reached down into the hearts of some of these magi at Nebuchadnezzar's court through Daniel. And undoubtedly, they were told about the opportunity for forgiveness and hope through a Messiah that would one day come, Emmanuel, God with us, that's one day coming. The glorious presence of God would again be seen in this world, a light that would shine out of Judah. In fact, the prophet tells us in Numbers 24, 17, and I'm sure Daniel would have explained this to the Magi, a star, in the Hebrew, a koshav, a blazing forth, shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel. And of course, who is this? Well, it's referring to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. In fact, Jesus said in Revelation 22, verse 16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. In fact, 2,000 years before God, before any of this happened, God inspired Jacob to prophesy in Genesis 49 and verse 10, saying this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, Shiloh is, is what we would call a, a cryptogram or a secret code for the Messiah, the one who is also called in Revelation 5.5, the lion from the tribe of Judah. And undoubtedly, these were some of the truths that Daniel taught the Magi over which he ruled. Now, in the miracle of divine providence, some 600 years after Daniel, you have the Magi, these kingmakers, seeing a blazing forth of light, something supernatural. Well, the question is, what was that? Well, everybody knows it was a star. I mean, haven't you seen that on television? You see that in all the Christmas cards? Folks, the nearest star to the earth is the sun, and it's 93 million miles away. The outside portion of the sun is 7 million degrees Fahrenheit. Let me ask you, have you ever seen a star appear and then disappear and then appear again? Why was this star visible to some but not visible to everyone? Have you ever seen a star disappear, then appear, and lead people over a single dwelling like we have here in verse 9? And what's intriguing is that Herod and the others in Jerusalem did not see this, quote, star in the east. In fact, in verse 7, they had to ask the Magi, (coughs) excuse me, where it appeared. Notice it says, Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. Phino in the original language. It means to to flash or to shine forth like like lightning that, that explodes in the sky. 
So he understands now that this isn't some celestial body millions of miles away in the heavens. And it's curious, isn't it? Why would the Magi go west to Jerusalem when they saw that brilliant shining in the east? And the answer is, they had to have known the meaning of what they saw. And undoubtedly, they remembered back through all of the, the ancient days what Daniel had told them. They knew something of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And again, later in verse 9, this blazing forth of supernatural light that they saw in the east suddenly reappears and leads them directly over the house where the Messiah was. I hardly think a star, as we think of it, could do that. By the way, as a footnote, Jesus by this time was between three months and two years old in, in verse 16. And we, we see Herod ascertained from the Magi there the, the, the child's age so he could kill all, the, all of the males two years of age and under. By the way, isn't this a very different scenario than what is typically depicted in nativity scenes where you see three wise men and, and some camels, and we've got some of these at our house too, and I don't want you to think that it's heresy here to have these nativity scenes, but, but you know, they're, they're hovering over a manger, and then you've got Santa over here and his Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and, and then Frosty Snowman, and, and the snowman, and he's waving at everyone wearing UT orange, you know. I mean, it's, it, it, it's crazy what you see these days. But dear friends, I don't want you to miss this. What the Magi saw was not some massive, luminous sphere of plasma held together by gravity that shines due to thermonuclear fusion of hydrogen. That's not what they saw. They saw, according to the text, an austere, which is a brilliant blazing forth of light. They saw a shining. But I want you to notice, it's not just any shining. It says that this was his star a possessive genitive in the original language. It was his star. It was his blazing forth. Folks, I'm convinced that what they saw was the Shekinah glory of the living God, a foretaste of the sign of the Son of Man that will appear in the sky that Jesus described in Matthew 24 when he returns again, when all of the lights of heaven will be turned out and no one will miss his second coming. This was a glorious light of the divine presence that signaled to sinful men that God had arrived. This was the same blazing forth of light prophesied in Numbers 24, 17. A koshav, a star, shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel. In other words, a ruling king is going to rise from Israel one day, a reference to the Messiah. As a footnote, you will recall in Scripture that, that God is, is immaterial, and often when he would materialize himself, in other words, when he would allow um, man to gaze upon him, he would reduce his attributes to visible light, called the Shekinah, which is a word that, that refers to the glorious light of the presence of God. And so what people would see would, would, would be a radiant, brilliant, dazzling, resplendent, ineffable light that we could describe as a star, a blazing forth. So, beloved, I believe this was the effulgence of the glory of God. 
And God describes the Shekinah throughout Scripture. We know that it was what Moses saw in the burning bush. And again on Mount Sinai, remember when Moses begged God to show him his glory? It was the Shekinah that led the Israelites through the wilderness, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. It was the Shekinah that hovered between the cherubim over the mercy seat atop of the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies and the Tabernacle and later the Temple. It's what appeared to the shepherds when they saw, remember, the glory of the Lord when the angelic messengers announced the birth of, of our Lord and Savior. That's what, that's what Saul saw on the road to Damascus, who later became the Apostle Paul. We saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus revealed himself, his glorious presence, remember, to Peter, James, and John. And and the text says that that his face shone like the sun and his clothing became white and gleaming. And beloved, it will be the sign of the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, when he returns in power and great glory. It will even be the lamp of the Lamb that will illumine the new Jerusalem, according to Revelation 21-23. Isn't it interesting, when he came the first time, only a selected few could see it. But when he returns again, the effulgence of his glorious presence is going to be seen around the world. No one will miss it. Every man will see it. So, the grace of God drew these Persian kingmakers to the Messiah. They must have been saying, my, that prophet Daniel... He was right all of those years ago. And of course, this would have been utterly reprehensible to the Jews to think that God would extend his mercy to the Gentiles. And even worse, to these pagan sorcerers, these elite rulers from Persia. But these magi were also a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 65 verse 1 where God said, I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation which did not call on my name. Then he goes on to say, but of Israel, he said, I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts of people who continually provoke me to my face. Which, by the way, is a passage that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, to describe the rebellion of his fellow Jews. So here we witness the power of sovereign grace that can pierce into the the darkest heart with the light of truth and draw undeserving sinners to the light of his mercy. Verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. They weren't able to see what they wanted to see so desperately. Let's look secondly now and finally at the darkness of the king haters. Obviously, Herod knew of the promised Messiah that would one day come, and he greatly feared that that day had arrived in a way that he could have never imagined. Notice verse 4 again. He gathered together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, At Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. 
And you, Bethlehem of the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What an amazing statement. A ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's fascinating because these were the very words that God spoke to David in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 2 when he originally enthroned him over all of the tribes of Israel at Hebron. And so Herod and the, the, the religious elite, they knew what was going on. They knew that this had to be the Messiah. But they refused to humble themselves in obedient worship to him. And instead, verse 7, Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. Yeah, because he didn't want anyone to know what he suspected to be true, that this was the Messiah, the king of the Jews. Nor did he want anyone to know of his nefarious plan to kill him. He needed to know the exact date of when they first saw that light so he could have some approximate idea of the age of the child so he could plot to kill him. So Herod responds in anger and fear in verse 8, Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. Well, obviously... This was a disingenuous request, betraying, once again, his, his self-centered cruelty and his pride. By the way, remember, Satan is God's ape. And Herod is Satan's ape in this text. And as Satan's ape, Herod's plan from the start was to try to circumvent the purposes of God. But like all godless rulers that reject the Son of God, the Lord Jesus, his, Jesus Christ, his schemes are going to be futile. And frankly, Herod was, was a picture of the rebellious Jews of that day that would one day join him in their refusal to worship their Messiah. Remember in Luke 19, they said, We do not want this man to reign over us. But what a contrast to the Magi. Notice what happens sometime later in verse 9. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star, which they had seen in the east. By the way, it, it doesn't say that they followed from the east, but they saw it. You see, it was a signal. It was not a GPS like we have in our car. But now it says that it went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. So again, only a selected few could see this light those who had humbled themselves by believing on him, but those who remained hardened in the rebellion, their rebellion and their unbelief could not see the light. So once again, the light of grace reappears, and now it leads these men to the Savior. Now, anytime anyone would see the glory of God, it's going to produce with them, within them just incredible excitement. I can't imagine what I would do if suddenly I could see that. By the way, don't you long to see that? And it's coming someday. And so notice the inexpressible joy in verse 10. And when they saw the blazing forth, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And why would that be? Because they saw God working on their behalf to lead them to the Messiah the Son of God, now a tiny babe in a manger. The glory of God is now contained in this, in this human body. 
And later Jesus would declare, John 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. And John tells us, you will recall in chapter 1 and verse 14, and the word became what? It became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Back to verse 11. And they came into the house, and they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. By the way, notice they did not worship Mary, which is a bone that sticks in the throat of Roman Catholics who worship her. They fell on their first faces, and they worshipped him. That literally means that they prostrated themselves in lowly worship. They just fell down before him. This is how the ancients always would approach an Eastern monarch. And friends, I might add that the higher a man's conception of God, the more lowly his homage. You want to ask yourself, does this reflect my worship? And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. In other words, their hearts now, they're just overflowing with gratitude. Gold, of course, is that precious metal, a symbol of nobility and royalty. Frankincense was an extremely expensive, fabulous fragrance of a, of a perfume. It was, uh, in fact, stored in a, in a special chamber in the temple. It was used uh, to sprinkle on the, the grain offerings, and it symbolized the passionate desire of the people of God to offer unto the Lord sacrifices that were pleasing to him. They also offered myrrh, a very costly perfume, unlike the incense of frankincense. And this was, was also mixed with wine, you will recall, as an anesthetic, and it was offered to Jesus on the cross, which he declined. And mixed with other spices, it was used to prepare a body for a funeral, for burial, I should say. And so we look at this, friends, and we see that there are those who hate the king and those who love the king. And you want to ask yourself, which group do I belong to? And I pray that especially as we think about the Christ of Christmas, we will emulate these ancient kingmakers. We will fall down on our faces and worship him. May we give him the best of our time and treasure as a true expression of our love for him. And may we also, and this is so important as we come to the end of our time here together, let's don't just look back at the glories of the incarnation, but let's look forward to the glories of Christ's second coming. Live in light of what Isaiah prophesied in chapter 4, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And oh, how I long to see the glory of God. I close with something that Nancy and I read in our devotion the other day from Charles Spurgeon. Here's what he said. We anticipate the happy day when the whole world shall be converted to Christ, when the gods of the heathen shall be cast to the moles and the bats, when Romanism shall be exploded and the crescent of Muhammad shall wane, never again to cast its baleful rays upon the nations, 
when kings shall bow down before the Prince of Peace, and all nations shall call their Redeemer blessed. When, and then he quotes the first two phrases of a great hymn, when Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does his successive journeys run. And as I read that, Nancy began to break out in song. She has a great mind for remembering lyrics. And she started singing, His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Let every creature rise and bring honors peculiar to our king. Angels descend with songs again and earth repeat the loud Amen. Oh, what hope we have in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the eternal truths of your word that speak so practically and so powerfully to our lives. I pray that as your people, we will contemplate these things, not for the purpose of being aware of history and some of the fascinating events that you have orchestrated, but Lord, so that we might fall on our faces and truly worship the living Christ, so that we might live as your people, awaiting your return to take us unto yourself. And Lord, if there be one here today that knows nothing of what it means to walk with Christ, to have sins forgiven, to be declared righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, I pray that today will be the day that they will humble their hearts, that they will acknowledge their sin because they know it's true, and that they will cry out to the Lord Jesus to save them by his grace alone. This is the cry of our heart. Thank you, Lord. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author, Dr. David Harrell. For more information or for other messages from Dr. Harrell, please visit the Olive Tree Christian Resources website at otcr.org.